police, power, and accountability. Coming up on Love Thy Neighbor. You're listening to the Love Thy Neighbor podcast, your home for discussion and analysis of the theology, ethics, and political philosophy of Ryan Wilkie. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Love Thy Neighbor podcast, the only podcast in the biz that is exclusively dedicated to the theology, ethics, and political philosophy of Reinhold Niebuhr. I'm Cliff Bailey, and I'm joined by co-hosts Zach Narrison and Aaron Duncan. Thank you all for joining us today. I want to take just a second to remind, or if you haven't heard yet, to inform our listeners of a host of outstanding upcoming guests. Really, we're packed until like midsummer. In the coming months, we will be interviewing, first, the former director of the U.S. State Department's Office of Religion and Global Affairs in the Obama administration, (sighs) deep breath, that's a long title, Sean Casey. We'll also be interviewing DePaul University Professor of Religious Studies, Scott Paith, Harvard Divinity's Professor of Theology and Ethics, Helen Gaston, and fellow at the American Institute for Contemporary German Studies, Josephine Graef. This summer, we have a big debate planned, and maybe you've heard, between Stanley Hauerwas and Gary Dorian. And one thing that we have lined up for the summer that we're really stoked about, we haven't announced it yet, is we will be doing a special Independence Day series where we will be reading and responding to Niebuhr's irony of American history, culminating in an interview with foreign policy expert and Professor Emeritus of International Relations and History at Boston University, Andrew Basevich. Maximum Niebuhr. But today is a day we've long looked forward to. The second episode we ever did was on this fellow's article, which covered the Russian invasion of Ukraine. By the way, that article uh, came out a year ago this week. Um, went back and looked it up. This was not planned, Uh, but that author's name is uh, Mark Tooley. Mark is an author of many books and articles on far-ranging topics from history to foreign policy to ecclesiology, theology, all theologies. He is the president of the Institute on Religion and Democracy, a think tank in Washington, D.C., and has been president of that think tank since 2009. And he is co-editor for the Christian Realist publication Providence, a journal of Christianity and American foreign policy. Mark, it's such a pleasure to have you. Welcome. Thank you. It's great to be with you all. Just having seen your tweets, I was curious who were the great minds behind them. So <laughs> good to actually see you. I uh, hope we don't disappoint too much. Um, so for our listeners, you know the drill. We've each read a recently published article by Mark, and we will all take turns asking him questions about it. And we will do, do so in order. I'll go first, then, then Zach, and then Aaron, and around we'll go for about a half hour. Uh, Now, Mark, before we get into the article itself, as I mentioned, we read and responded to one of your articles in the early days of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, um, which came out a year ago this week, which is about a a year, you know, a year to the week of the war starting. Um, I think we'd be remiss if we didn't ask, take this opportunity to ask you at least one question about that situation, just real quick. Um, but back then you argued in very Niburian fashion for persistence, patience, and confidence when it comes to the U.S. strategy. And you said, I think quite presciently, we could say now, like that 
Putin's overreach in Ukraine ultimately may destroy him. Um, but you said it might take years. Where are you on that question now? Has anything in the past year changed the calculus on any of this, particularly Russia's loyalty to Putin? I'm sticking with my prediction that this will ultimately be the undoing of Putin and his regime in the same sense that arguably the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan in 1979 ultimately led to the demise of uh, the Soviet Union just uh, a dozen years later. Uh, but as I said, as you reminded me, it, it's uh, going to be likely a years-long process, or it could be quite sudden. But uh, back in late February, early March of last year, it was logical to assume that the Russians would uh, easily overwhelm the Ukrainians, or at the very least, take Kiev. And here we are a year later, and they have maybe at most 20% of the country, I think it's 17% in the uh, eastern part of Ukraine. So it's been rather a fiasco for Putin. Perhaps 100,000 Russian troops have been lost. There's no end in sight. And the West has been fairly solid in supporting Ukraine. So it will be a long slog. But I would say the prognosis for Putin is not bright. Would you say that has Ukraine surprised you? Uh, because that was very early um, that you wrote that piece. But ha have they surprised you, I guess, in their resistance? Yes, I assume they have surprised most people, certainly how they repulse uh, the Russian advance away from Kiev, such that uh, Russia essentially had to withdraw and focus exclusively in the far east of Ukraine, where they were already engaged. So it's been remarkable. I think the stereotypes about Ukraine were that it was quite a nation, that it was intrinsically corrupt, that it was extremely divided. Uh, Zelensky was uh, a former uh, sort of reality TV star. Yeah, comedy. So uh, he was comedian. certainly a yeah. comedian, certainly an unproven quantity. Uh, to what extent would the West back Ukraine uh, when Russia had taken uh, the Crimea, the response from the West had been very anemic. So lots of surprises, but Maybe not. The West tends to pull together ultimately in the end when a genuine threat is posed against it. Yeah, good. I wish we had a whole hour on that topic right there. But um, switching gears to the main topic, uh, you have a very thoughtful piece uh, here that's basically a Christian realist approach to police brutality, specifically in the case of Tyre Nichols. And you very clearly take the Niburian approach of kind of forming a dialectic between power and accountability. Um, the piece, by the way, appeared in the Institute on Religion and Democracy's website, and we have a link uh, that we'll be posting on our Twitter account for you, uh, for our listeners to read. It's titled Christian Realism and Tyre Nich uh, Tyree Nichols. Now, Mark, for how much Niebuhr is still informing the public and leaders are still drawing from his writings, there's kind of this annoying chirping always coming from at least one corner of Christian thought that is constantly giving us this old tired refrain that Niebuhr is no longer relevant. Um, Niebuhr's a, a, an historic relic. Niebuhr is maybe important in seminary, but let's leave him in the past type of thing. Now, I can see the perspective of many of these people, kind of where they're coming from, I guess. But I'm wondering how you might speak to this specifically as you go to write an article like this, clearly drawing on Niebuhr. What are some of the strengths and maybe some of the limitations of using Niebuhr in our current context, especially in matters so politically charged as another death of an unarmed black man at the hands of police. Well, you move in different circles than I do, and maybe your circles are broader, but I've never heard the sentence uttered, Niebuhr no longer matters, or he's no longer 
relevant. Uh, much more common, of course, is uh, no mention of Niebuhr at all uh, for most of American Christianity, mostly forgotten, or he's become maybe a throwaway line. Uh, it seems sophisticated to indicate that you admire Reinhold Niebuhr, but what does that mean? Well, usually it doesn't mean a whole lot, but American Christians, especially Protestants, tend to be very moralistic, and we like our villains, and we like our heroes, and we like to solve problems. And so when we are confronted by a social issue, we immediately uh, impose that expectation and want to denounce the villain and remove him from the stage. But uh, most of these situations involving law enforcement are not so clear cut. Uh, obviously, all reasonable, decent people are against abuse by the police. Uh, but at the same time, how do we define abuse? And if we overly, as I wrote in the article, if we overly restrain law enforcement, even with the best of intentions, that, that will uh, deter law enforcement from uh, being aggressive when it needs to be aggressive, because criminality, especially in our cities, is itself aggressive and will be as aggressive as it can get away with and without a response from a countervailing power, i.e. law enforcement, uh, the innocent, the law-abiding will be the victims, mostly those who are on the lower rung of the socioeconomic ladder are more prone to be the victims of aggressive criminality than those who are wealthier, who live in nicer neighborhoods, who are better able to protect themselves. So we have seen this tragedy unfold over the last several years, a response to the growing exposure of abuse by law enforcement. And at some points, especially in 2020, the demonization of law enforcement and proposals even to abolish law enforcement, which Reinhold Niebuhr obviously would strenuously object to. Uh, I think the pushback has been such those calls have largely subsided. And yet we still are looking for easy answers in terms of solving uh, abuses by law enforcement uh, without addressing uh, in some cases, growing criminality. I just read this morning here in Washington, D.C., uh, homicides are 40% above what they were at this point last year. It's an enormous problem and so tragic in that Washington, D.C. has recovered over the last 25 years from uh, the almost unbearable high crime rates of the 1980s and the early 1990s and a rejuvenation of the city and tens of thousands of people moving back into the city and the rebirth of old neighborhoods in Washington, D.C., and I would hate to, compounded by the impact of the pandemic, it would be extremely tragic if the nation's capital were to wither under an onslaught of criminality. And the answer uh, is mostly more effective law enforcement. Now, as far as limitations, let me just give you one example, and then we'll go to Zach's uh, question. But uh, so David Brooks once had David Brooks has all the, all the respect for Niebuhr in the world, but even he had pointed out that Niebuhr can come across as kind of a rider on a gray horse. Um, somebody who, and this is a critique of like James Cohn and many people on the left, that Niebuhr can kind of uh, corner us sometimes into accepting a status quo. And I'm I'm wondering if that, if if you're at all cognizant of that as you're writing a piece like this. Yes, that's a very good point. Niebuhr uh, taken to the extreme or even taken too seriously can be almost crippling uh, with his emphasis on the, the sinfulness and the depravity of all people. So is anyone really doing God's work or do we just 
step back and uh, adopt an attitude of ambivalence to everybody and to everything. But obviously Niebuhr never advocated for that. And Niebuhr was at heart still a um, somewhat of a, a crusader or maybe he would deny, deny it, but somewhat of a, an idealist uh, in that he was always fighting for good causes. But I think he had this uh, internal uh, psychological, spiritual dynamic in which he was uh, trying to hold himself back from the soaring idealism of his uh, uh, earlier career and uh, earlier intellectual life and warning against uh, hubris by all sides. So it is a balance, but Niebuhr never abandoned his quest for a more just society. Well, and you know, you know my question actually, this flows, I think, perfectly off of this question. And that is one of the things we've kind of found as we've kind of gone through these, you know, having tons of hosts on and reading quite a bit of Niebuhr's work is I wonder um, at one point you bring up that kind of uh, this is always going to be with us. And I wonder, and I, I, I totally agree with you, but I sort of wonder if in these moments when something like this happens, if we, when we say, you know, this will always be with us, if we risk a certain apathy, you know what I mean? I, I think it's realistic and I think it's, it's fundamentally like what I think of, but I sort of wonder if we need certain illusions, like the illusion that we can make a difference or the illusion that we can do something about this in order to actually pursue justice to some degree. I was just kind of, does that make sense? Yes, it is. And uh, you as pastors better understand this uh, tension uh, for the Christian life. Uh, as pastors, uh, you want to save everybody. You want to bring everybody to the gospel. But, uh, you know, realistically, that's not going to be possible. Uh, the road is, is, is narrow and uh, most people don't follow it. And yet you keep striving and uh, you ask for God's blessing as you share the gospel for everyone. Uh, likewise, in a more secular sense, uh, we're constantly seeking to perfect and make society more just. But we know deep down that uh, in this current state of humanity's fallenness until the end of time, we're never going to have a perfected society. And yet we keep striving and keep pushing. And the consequences and the fruits of our striving and pushing uh, can be quite uh, wonderful, but we still have to be realistic. Thanks again, Mark, for uh, joining us. Um, this kind of plays off of your answer just uh, to Cliff's question just a, moment, a few moments ago. But um, Niebuhr is all about finding that elusive balance, as you call it near the end of the article. Um, some might call it you know, the, the already but not yet. But, you know, Niebuhr highlights the importance of also the role of the prophet, prophetic, um, the position of standing within and defying that by judging from some sort of values that hang from above is kind of what distinguishes the conventional re religion. He uh, judges in the the King's chapel, the King's court from the Nixon Graham doctrine. So my question to you is what is it in this article or in your life's work? Do you think the role of the prophet plays for yourself? Um, is it, I'm going to venture out and say, is it calling to the attention of the public as you say in the article, the uh, emasculation of the police? Well, yes. Uh, in uh, 2020, uh, we at our downtown Washington, D.C. office, just a few blocks from the White House and also from Black Lives Matters Plaza, uh, we and my office literally uh, on the second floor overlooks uh, 15th Street uh, near McPherson Square and could literally uh, watch all of the social tumult of 2020 uh, unfold uh, right beneath my office. Uh, it was the pandemic, but unlike everyone else, we reopened our office, I think, in uh, 
early June of 2020. So I saw it, uh, watched it, and um, experienced it. Uh, our um, office wasn't directly attacked, but uh, the subway sub shop and the uh, beauty salon right below us, their windows were smashed uh, on the Sunday night before Donald Trump uh, did his famous march to Lafayette uh, Square. And obviously, uh, St. John's Church had been set on fire that night. And it was uh, quite uh, dramatic and uh, to see the city almost die during those months uh, under the pressure of the pandemic and the crime and all of the social tensions was highly distressing. And it brought back memories of uh, the early 1970s. I uh, was born in 1965, but I had very, very early childhood memories of uh, the anti-war demonstrations and some of the riots and obviously the high crime rates of the 1970s. And to see us return to those days uh, was almost unimaginable. But again, uh, the near Newburian response is uh, you can't allow these social forces to get out of control. You have to push back. You have to, uh, uh, to use the buzz phrase, enforce some form of law and order at the same time realizing, realizing law and order uh, can itself be extremely dangerous. And those who wield the sword are almost intrinsically at some point going to abuse it. So you have to constantly uh, uh, make sure that the countervailing forces are always uh, somewhat balanced and not too much, put too much trust in even the best of intentions. So I want to bring up this dialectic that you paid close attention to. Basically, there must, it's the idea that there must be a valid threat of aggression in society for there to be peace. There needs to be some something invisible there to keep me from speeding. There, ha there has to be some threat that the policemen might be around the corner to get me, for me to stop. You know, there has to be some force and it's kind of a Hobbesian view of government. If you just take that stance, that there must be some force to restrain kind of our natural impulses. On the other hand, fear does more than just maintain an order, but the fear actually compounds the problem with the minorities because you can't have too much fear either. There can't be too much aggression or there's a, a significant amount of distrust among uh, Black and Latino uh, communities. That's right, of course. There has to be, uh, hopefully there's a great deal of trust. Hopefully all communities in uh, any particular uh, jurisdiction see the police uh, not as an adversary or some alien force, but as their agents uh, working on their behalf, uh, paid for by their tax dollars and there to protect their security and to seek the common good of the community. Obviously, in many communities, uh, that was absent, although I think part of the pushback uh, since 2020, uh, even from any many inner city communities, is uh, we do, in fact, want more police. We do, in fact, see them as representing us. We just want them to behave well, and that's a completely reasonable expectation. Well, I've got I've got to ask. <clears throat> I've been wanting to, I've been building up this, I've been thinking of this question, trying to formulate it, but... Um, you know, the Asbury revival has been a big deal and you've, I've seen you post about it a couple of times and things like that. And one of the common criticisms that I've seen of that revival, and this is kind of new to me to, to, to see this criticism because I've never lived through a revival, um, is that people immediately look to this and there's a, there's an immediate criticism that comes out that this is actually not, um, well, there's been a lot of criticisms, obviously from a lot of different people, but that's expected. 
but there's a specific criticism about um, a revival of justice and a revival of like uh, pietism or like uh, spirituality. Um, do you see in a revival like the Asbury revival, like a, a the ability to, to go from that um, experience of God to a, to a greater justice? Yes, I do. Uh, but uh, my hopes are perhaps more uh, emotional than uh, justified by empirical evidence. But uh, obviously in history, we do have, I think, some evidence to indicate that revivals, if, wives, if widespread, do lead to a greater level of social justice. Uh, the Asbury revival, of course, took place at uh, historically uh, Methodist University, uh, which the uh, historically Methodist seminary across the street also became involved with. So the revival wasn't specifically Methodist or, or Wesleyan, but it certainly had much of that spirit. And it may have involved uh, tens of thousands of people coming to tiny Wilmore, Kentucky over just a couple of weeks. So it was quite remarkable, always apparently led primarily by students, not uh, orchestrated, although somewhat carefully managed very wisely, I have the impression, and that uh, more um, potentially extreme elements or people who went to exploit it who came to town were carefully uh, kept away from the stage. So uh, it seems to have been wonderful uh, across the board, uh, very restrained and temperate and yet powerful. Everyone I've talked to who attended said they just felt a great sense of uh, peace and uh, of deepened faith and serenity just from sitting there in that uh, auditorium amid song and prayer and uh, the sharing of testimonies and the expressions of repentance. So what will emerge from that revival, uh, I think we'll see the fruits unfold for years and decades that there had been a similar revival in Wilmore, Kentucky uh, over 50 years ago and people in their 70s and 80s uh, still talk about it, how it changed their lives, how it, it motivated their vocations in Christian ministry. And I think we'll see something similar as the fruits of this revival, not just in direct church ecclesial vocations, but also perhaps in political and social work. And that I think any deep and, and genuine revival will uh, plant the seed in those who are touched by it for uh, working for a society that more resembles God's kingdom. Although there again, Niebuhr comes in, uh, we're not going to complete God's kingdom, but at least we can uh, strive to echo God's kingdom. Cool, cool. Um, I'm going to ask this question, but I don't know if it's going to, if it's basically the same question you've asked a moment ago. I've been trying to think about it. But um, I think you rightfully point out that if we have so much oversight and pressure on police officers, it could make, it could instill a sense of fear in them to actually complete and fulfill their expectations and duties, right? Um, that's probably the institutional factor. They they are individual persons as well who have hopes, dreams, expectations, and their own fears. And my worry is, is a double-jointed thing where fear of oversight, but I wonder how many people who go into the police force um, are trained to fear not the oversight, but the people who are who they are protecting themselves. And I wonder in your mind, you know, working in, I guess, you know, if your ideal had a, if you had a policy proposal or something like that, how could we reconstruct the institution of police training to include some sort of 
une- maybe uneasy conscious, maybe more a positive Christian conscious to protecting individuals, um, loving individuals, loving communities, instead of fearing communities on the outside. Does that make sense? It does, I think. Um, yeah. Maybe part of the issue is often police officers don't live in the communities in which they live. Often they're commuting in from other communities, yeah. but not always. I, I hate to always be self-referential, but again, in, in 2020, yeah. during that tumult, uh, there were dozens of pl- D.C. police officers who would sort of rally uh, right beneath our office uh, at 15th and K Street, sometimes 20 or 30 at a time. And to me, they all looked like they were 25 years old. They all looked very young and innocent uh, young men and women of all races. And uh, I just felt great empathy and sympathy for them. They clearly hadn't been on the force much more than a few years. And I'm sure they were at least started out idealistic and striving to do well. And how were they reacting to all of these mm-hmm. unfolding events? And now, three years later, uh, the mayor of D.C. just said uh, she wants to hire more police officers and the money is there, but they can't find them. They're not getting the applicants. It'll take years to get back up to where they need to be. They don't even have the numbers they had 20 years ago when crime rates were much higher. So it would be, who can be surprised that there are fewer applicants to work in law enforcement after uh, over the last three years. It must be very discouraging if uh, the career is less respected and uh, if it's at least perceived that there are more restraints on your work and perhaps some would say even unreasonable oversight. So we have to keep this in mind if we want effective law enforcement. It has to be a desirable career and those who serve in it have to be incentivized with good pay and uh, with respect as in any career, uh, any uh, vocation that is uh, demonized and and looked down upon is not going to attract people. And the people it attracts are not going to be, of course, the best, best kind of people. So just to go off of that, I'm just wondering what we are kind of ironically critiquing here is police somehow generating an uneasy conscience is making them more ineffective that somehow making them more aware of their capacity to do harm in the public and aware of perhaps the accountability and checks on them. It's almost like we're taking a Niburian stance against a Niburian stance within policing, <laughs> um, that that they should be more inclined to aggression or um and a lot of the a lot of the protocol might be kind of anti-neburian in that way and even the um the the kind of uh the institution that aaron's speaking of the kind of people that policing attracts would kind of be less neburian and more about law like law and order and belief and power. Um, and I guess that's arguably Niburian too. So I'm just wondering if, is that what we're saying that to have an uneasy conscience is a bad thing for a police officer? Yes, that's a very helpful insight. Uh, Niebuhr would disapprove of this language, but I think it's within the realm of Christian orthodoxy to say that law enforcement is a holy vocation, that being a magistrate is a holy calling. It is ordained uh, of God, but to be ordained is not to be uh, without uh, limitations and not prone to potentially great depravity. So those who are equipped and called to power have great responsibility and Mm -hmm. uh, also great duties in terms of self-restraint and discernment. So the wise and judicious uh, law enforcement officer is going to have a, in some sense, a uh, 
a sense of spiritual calling and even a holy zeal for law enforcement, but that zeal can't be wrapped up in their own ego or lust for power. It has mm-hmm. to be a zeal for the good of the community. And that's a lot to expect, but my experience is uh, many in law enforcement do have the, that a, a responsible holy zeal. They generally want to do good. And if the community supports and collaborates with them, uh, they can be effective and are effective. How, how should that be taught? How should that be addressed? Because clearly egotism tends to come with the the territory. Um, just the inherent, I mean, just the inherent belief that that force is, is necessary, or at least the threat of force is necessary for maintaining society. Uh, and we have to assume most people don't have that Niburian counterweight on the other mm-hmm. side to that egotism. So I'm just wondering, what can we do in the institution itself to create that counterweight outside of more restrictions and and more uh, heavier penalties and stuff like that? Is there a part of their training that needs to, uh, I don't know, that needs to incorporate some of these Niburian ideas, I guess, uh, to have a better outcome? It's a cliche to say, oh, the church should be doing more. Right. (laughs) And uh, the church can't do... uh, everything. I guess the church could always be doing more, but uh, and maybe the church and some of its elements already is, but the church ha- should have a, a teaching regarding uh, the calling of law enforcement and the responsibilities and the duties and the respect of cor- uh, that should be given to it and uh, special um, ministries to those who are in law enforcement. And some of that exists. Obviously, there are police chaplains, how well they're trained and how deep they are in Christian teaching. I don't have a good sense of that but um and the same also transfers over to how the church looks at law enforcement there's been some confusion on this issue uh, perhaps i exaggerate it from my vantage point but over the last 20 or 25 years there had been the popularity in, in wide circles of christianity to uh, deride uh, um, the idea that people of faith can wield the sword whether in law enforcement or in the military and obviously the popularity of Dr. Yoder's teachings, which are now uh, subsiding, uh, but that just they just added a great deal of confusion. If it was inherently unjust to use force for Christians, then can Christians even participate in law enforcement or even in government? And uh, if they can't, then that's going to lead to a form of law enforcement that is even farther away from than what we desire. So hopefully, we're emerging from that confusion. I think that we are, but I, I hope uh, as we emerge from that confusion we're more intentional about developing very deep and rich uh, uh, and contemporarily applicable teachings for law enforcement and for magistrates about their responsibilities. Did you say Yoder's uh, uh, influence is maybe receding? I think it is. Do you disagree? I have no idea. I don't know. Like I, (laughs) like every, it seems like everyone I disagree with and there's a lot (laughs) of people are coming from that persuasion. How old are they? My age, uh, under 40. Yeah. It was quite popular in our Bible college. Yeah, I think yeah. it, it really? might be just our circle. Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, my impression, and uh, again, it could be incorrect, was it was uh, it was ascendant in the 1990s among uh, Gen X, which is my generation, and it continued to the 2000s. It was amplified by the after effects of the Iraq war, it almost seemed like, unless you were a specifically religious right person, 
if you were in intellectual Christianity, that you were by default uh, some kind of pacifist inter, uh, influenced by Yoder and Hauerwas. And that seems to have been uh, in decline over the last five or six years. I've been, uh, through Providence, I've been taking some of the credit for that in terms of organizing Thank just you, four Mark. scholars who are, <laughs> have provided an organized response. But I've also sensed that the Ukraine war has also maybe put the kibosh on a, a big, a large swash of Christian pacifism, but it sounds like it still survives, at least in some Well, period. I haven't talked to a whole lot of people since the Ukraine invasion, but I but I do think that a lot of my pacifist friends are, they, they're starting to make an exception, you know, here mm -hmm. and there. So I, I, I definitely see cracks. I, I just, I thought that was interesting you said that and yeah, wanted to follow up. Real quick, if you don't mind, um, I, I don't know how much time you have left. Um, we have time for one Mark. question left, okay. I think. I, I think this is very important because the, the one person we've missed out talking about the most here is Tyree Nichols. Which mm -hmm. is what the art the article is is geared towards, and I think you know, Mark, you do a really big justice to the situation with your ending comment, um, extending comfort to the family of Tyree Nichols and um, and minister justice to his killers, mixed with mercy. So there's a dialect between punishment and mercy in there. My question to you, and I, I just I don't know, you know, how we want to end in this is um, we get, we just get one yeah. question. Oh, okay, please. okay, sorry. So Go ahead. How how do we maybe not specifically as church, but how do we in public? I know because Cornel West says you know tenderness is what love feels like in private, but justice is what love feels like in public. Okay, so how how do we feel that love in public? How do we uphold the dignity of people like Tyree Nichols and maybe people who go unaccounted for, people who have experiences that aren't documented? Um, so the, how do we uphold the voice of those victims, even if those voices are unheard of or unheard, whilst also praising the the virtues of, of the state and of the individuals and men and women who serve in our police force? I recently read this new, uh, purportedly it's the uh, definitive, most comprehensive biography of J. Edgar Hoover ever written. And uh, it's very, very good, written by a, a woman professor at Yale. And he's a much more fascinating, co complex person than recent characters would portray him, but uh, he became very popular in the 1930s and 1940s as the fierce foe of all criminality and often referred to criminals as uh, the filth of the streets. We have to rid ourselves of this filth, and uh, perhaps we need to avoid that attitude of referring to any group of people as uh, filth. Even the worst of criminals are, in fact, uh, mm. human beings, tragically not that much different from ourselves, just a few choices. Of, all of us are just a few choices away from being exactly uh, as they are. And so that's an awareness that has to be uh, constantly aware of us, that all of us are equal in our sinfulness and fallenness and our susceptibility to depravity. All of us could be criminals. All of us, to a certain extent, are criminals. I'm driving to Asbury Seminary tomorrow, uh, 500 miles away, and I would drive 85 miles an hour if I could get away with it, but I won't because of uh, fear of being stopped by law enforcement. And who knows what else I would try if I thought I could get away with it. That's true for all of us. All of us are potentially terrible criminals. And suppose, I, I suppose that's an important point uh, for law enforcement to remember that uh, they're on 
one side of the law, but they could very easily be on the other side. There's not that much that separates him, and that should give us all caution. My my final question for you is roll it's a softball here. Um, what reading through this, maybe could you give us two or three books that you think are like essential reading? Right, if somebody read your article and they said, you know, I want to start getting into Christian realism, I want to start reading this. Uh, what what do you recommend? My friend Eric uh, Patterson uh, just released an edited volume on Christian realism. Came out just a few months ago. Uh, that uh, republishes uh, old works from famous Christian realists, foremost of all, Reinhold Niebuhr, but not limited to him, and also has some contemporary reflections. Uh, We hosted a a book launch event whose video you can easily find if you Google it. So I would recommend uh, that book as perhaps uh, the most uh, recent literature on Christian realism. Okay, so my last question, Mark, now, I, I I greatly enjoyed this article. Um, I think you got the Niburian counterweight just right um, to the point that I think that some people, depending on where they come in from, they might think you're taking the other side, <laughs> you know, and, uh, and overinflating the other side of it, maybe. Now, I want to do a little thought experiment. So take out Tyree Nichols um, and in his place, put the victims of the Selma police beatings. Does this paper read the same under those under that situation? What would you change about it? Um, would you have a larger section, perhaps, on the institutional critique of of Jim Crow? Um, how would this look different at all? Uh, why or why not? I don't know if I fully understand the question, but I would say we as Americans tend to think that uh, we are uh, uh, the center of all human activity. And uh, even critics of American exceptionalism are, in fact, you almost always themselves very American exceptionalist. And we think our problems are entirely unique to ourselves. But I think all of the problems in American law enforcement are endemic to almost all law enforcement everywhere around the world in terms of susceptibility to uh, abuse, to uh, privileging some segments of society and uh, discriminating against other segments of society. Uh, Every society has that group who are on the bottom and unfortunately disdained and uh, therefore uh, often are on uh, the raw side of treatment by law enforcement. So I'm not sure this is an American specific problem or necessarily uh, all connected to our legacy of slavery and racism. I think these are primarily just uh, human problems that have always been with us and uh, will be with us till the end of time. Well, I think that, just to clarify my point a little bit more, I think that we can use these will always be a problem as kind of a justification for the way that things are sometimes. There's nothing to do about it because these will always be with us. Um, and if I'm coming from a certain persuasion, let's say during the 1960s when Selma is happening and things like that, and I, and if I read a piece like this, I might wonder to myself if this reads more like an apologetic for the police um, than as something that actually maintains a counterbalance that I think is what you're intending is you're trying to create this balance that we need police. Um, They are instruments of God's justice in the world. And you're, it seems like you're trying to counterbalance the abolish the police crowd. 
and there's an audience for that definitely but i'm just wondering if if this article would look the same with the same type of uh that could still be kind of perceived as an apologetic if it were written in the 1960s does that make sense it could be and uh that critique may be justified uh, you know there could be a critique of Niebuhr himself uh, he was not in the because he was older he was not in the streets in the, the 1960s or even in the 1950s he certainly favored the idea of civil rights and he wrote uh, powerfully on the fact that uh, white people like any group of people would not voluntarily willingly abandon their privilege unless they perceived that they had to and yet uh, my recollection is uh, uh, Niebuhr w also had some misgivings about the civil rights movement, that it was overly uh, idealistic and soaring in its uh, ambitions and it was susceptible to perfectionist impulses. And that was probably true. Didn't mean he was uh, against it. Uh, but I, I think even the very best and the holiest of uh, most sacred of social causes, we always have to be aware, well, these are just uh, people and uh, if they overthrow this injustice and they prevail and they're in charge, well, how will they uh, abuse their powers and influence? It's sadly, again, using that word uh, inevitable, but it, it's so true. So uh, the intervention of God's grace and mercy is uh, constantly needed. The need will never recede. Good. Well, thank you very much, Mark, for coming on. It was a pleasure. Um, that about does it for this week's episode of Love Thy Neighbor. I want to thank again our, our guest, Mark Tully. Check out his article on our Twitter account. Um, and I, I want to thank you all, the listeners, uh, for tuning in. Make sure you like and subscribe. Write us a good review if you're enjoying it. And follow us on Twitter at Love Thy Neighbor. Take care, everybody, and stay safe out there.